Hello, late night listeners. Uh, this is Brian, and I wanted to let you know that we have a Patreon. It's a really fun thing. It's a great way to support the show, and it gets you access to all kinds of exclusive stuff. We have exclusive mini episodes. We have videos of me, for example, writing music for various things of the show. Leighton's doing all sorts of stuff, and it's just a really fun community. You also get access to our Discord if you sign up for our $5 a month tier or up. So uh, if you like the show and you like what you hear, please check us out over on Patreon. It's really a great way to to support us. Thanks so much, and enjoy Late Night with Brian Wecht. It's my Don Pardo impression. So, Steph, normally we don't introduce the guests until quite a ways into the show, but I think we need to make an exception this week, considering who it is. So everyone, this is Leighton Knight with Brian Wecht. This is Leighton over here. Hello, that's me. That voice was Brian Wecht. Hi. And mystery guest, would you care to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Stephanie Wecht, and I am Brian's sister. And do you want to say anything about what you do or who you are? Oh, sure. You mean people don't want to just know that I'm your sister? That's not my sole identity? <laughs> That's what I was going to say, is perhaps you'd care to define yourself independent of my existence. Sure. In addition to being Brian's sister, I work at the ACLU and have for quite a long time and work in nonprofit and have a lovely almost 13-year-old daughter who is Brian's niece that I parent and I live in the, our beautiful home state of New Jersey. That's right. Wonderful. So... Which one of you is the older sibling? Can you guess? Um, this is going to be fun because oh, yeah. not only, Stephanie, can you tell Leighton embarrassing stories about me, we can also put Leighton on the spot and try to make her guess differences between us. Ooh, I like that. Brian, you have desperate younger sibling energy, so that's my guess. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That makes me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> that is not true. I am the older one. Yeah. By two and a half years. Oh, wow. Two and a half years, yep. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, now there's egg on my face. Desperate energy? What the fuck? <laughs> Desperate younger sibling <laughs> energy, to be clear. That is borderline insulting. I mean, look, I'll own it, but uh, I don't love it. I'm not going to say it makes me happy. Well, I wasn't really concerned about your happiness with that statement. If you're going to ask a question, <laughs> I feel like you need to be prepared for the honest answer, which is what this show is all about. That's always correct. honest, always professional, uh, always allergy-free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm having a great time over here. People listening at home, I already told them this, but my allergies decided to kick 10 minutes before this episode, so I am currently rocking a Breathe Right nasal strip. Cool. So yes, I'm the older by about two and a half years. And let's see, what else can we say about us and our childhood? We are the only of two siblings, so it's just yes. us. There okay. are no other siblings. Mm -hmm. We have no living parents or grandparents. Nope. It's been just us for about 15 years. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Brian took care of them. <laughs> Look, <laughs> I, they, they were pissing me off, to be blunt. <laughs> And I saw a solution and I acted on it. But the statute of limitations on murder is what? It's like a couple months, right? <laughs> I think so. So I think I'm okay. How many federal crimes have you confessed to on this podcast? Uh, well, let's see. I did smoke marijuana, which I believe is still a federal crime. 
Oh, that's true. So I did that. I think that's it in terms of crimes. Although maybe the what's popping thing is a crime. Yeah, you have committed some crimes against comedy, which I'm pretty sure are punishable <laughs> under the federal government. That's a good title for this show. Yeah. I've completely forgot what I just said already. <laughs> crimes against comedy. So describe your dynamic as children. By the way, I am genuinely interested in what you have to say, not just in relation to me. So I do want to not just spend this entire show talking about myself or you talking about me. I think you probably have some very interesting and cool things to say about <laughs> what you do. But let's start where we are and see where we go. So I think that we always got along very well as kids, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm -hmm. And then... As teenagers, we got along, but just had our own separate directions for the way that we went. We didn't have a rough housey, well, maybe a little bit. There was the time that when I got my ears pierced and you ripped the earring out of my ear. What? But other than well, that. No, 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 no. To be fair, she deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hold on. What's this story? That isn't easy to do. Uh, let's see if I can remember. Okay. Did it get caught on my sweater? Like the stud got caught on my sweater and ripped out of your ear? It did. I had begged mom to let me get my ears pierced. And she finally let me do it with lots of, as I'm sure you can imagine, warnings about how everything could go wrong. Mm -hmm. And then there was some kind of wrestling happening. <laughs> That's a New Jersey term, by the way. We were wrestling down by the creek. <laughs> and uh, my earring cut on your sweater and like ripped clean out of my earlobe. Yes. Uh, I remember this now. Like, did it rip through the bottom of your earlobe? Almost. It was like almost right to the bottom. Oh. Yeah. Gross. What do you even do for that? Do you just let it seal up? <laughs> you pierce your ear slightly next to it. <laughs> That's wonderful. I can't remember, Layton. Do you have pierced ears? I don't. I had them pierced repeatedly as a child, but I was so bad at taking care of them that like, it was just not going so hot for me. So I let them close. And now I wear clip-on earrings, mm -hmm. which is the true way, folks at home. If you don't have your ears pierced or don't want to do it, clip-ons. Act like a four-year-old who gives a shit. Etsy has a booming clip-on market. Am I remembering correctly, Steph? Mom had just clip-ons for years, and then she eventually got her ears pierced when she was like 50 or something? Yes. I think like 45, 50, she got her ears pierced. Hell yeah. Yeah, it's a bold choice at that age. It's great. But I remember for years, it was just clip-ons. So I'm assuming she went straight to gauges and a Medusa piercing <coughs> and a septum piercing and a tragus piercing? That's correct. Those are all real piercings, by the way. <laughs> I don't know how much you know about piercings, Brian. Nothing, and I assumed half of those were made up. Well. Tragus? Do I want to know what that is? Uh, take a guess. I think that is something that goes through your anus. Well, it's part of your ear. It's the little oh, okay. triangular bit. The little flap. The thing that you can push on to seal off, like to plug your ears. Yes. Yeah, it's that one. Got it. So I was close. Yes, very close. Well, I have really never talked about this stuff publicly. What our mother's personality <laughs> uh -oh. This is a late night exclusive, folks. Get the dirt. Yeah. On your mom. I would say our mother was a very high anxiety person. She was kind of nervous and catastrophized a lot of things. She was a very kind person who was very generous with friends and family to her own detriment a lot of the time, but also kind of assumed the worst pretty much always. Yeah. 
This makes a lot of sense, actually. I remember the time I bought a white comforter in college, and she told me that I would rue the day that I made that decision. (laughs) (laughs) Did you? To be fair, I don't know if I rued that day, but I certainly should not have had a white comforter. Fabulous. So what did your mom do? Before she had kids, she was an elementary school teacher for a bit. Mm -hmm. And then... After I was born until, I don't know, maybe I was 10-ish. So for 10-ish, maybe closer to 15-ish years, she was just a stay-at-home mom. Well, she worked at the store then, too, though. That's what I was going to say, is at some point, she was only a stay-at-home mom for a while. But then our father owned, with his brother, our uncle, a retail store, a clothing store in Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. And she was doing like part-time work at the store and then became a full-time employee at that store doing like admin type stuff. Yeah. And then that store closed. It went out of business during the recession in the 90s, which was a very catastrophic event for our family. And then she went through like a few other jobs. She tried to do real estate, but she just couldn't bring herself to do it. Just hated it. She had to be completely honest with people and couldn't ever tell a any type of, not even a lie, (laughs) but just a white lie. Sure, salesman talk. She wouldn't exaggerate. That's why she told Brian at a very young age the Easter Bunny did not exist. Santa Claus. Oh, was it Santa Claus? (laughs) The story that I remember is when I was two, I was like, Mom, is Santa real? And she was like, no, you got me. (laughs) Wow, a skeptic right out of the womb. Yep. So, yeah, she was quite an honest person most of the time. And real estate was not her field. And then for the latter part of her life, worked in admin. She was at a doctor's office for a while and at like a travel agency for a bit. Yeah. So she was a teacher, then a stay-at-home mom, and then like an admin type person. She didn't have like a career career in a traditional sense. How much did her teaching experience kind of trickle into y'all's lives as children? I don't think that much. What do you think, Steph? No, she didn't teach for that long. And I don't think that was her. She did not strike me as a teacher type. You know, some people just have big teacher energy. And (laughs) she did not. She was not, uh, what do I want to say? Comforting. A lot of the time. (laughs) Yeah, so with the anxiety and catastrophizing, my mother is extremely similar. So how did that, like, manifest for you all? Probably more for you than me. Right, Steph? Yeah. Just a lot of very extreme reactions to very small things. And I was a, (laughs) I was a good kid, but had a bit of a rebellious streak as a teenager more so than Brian. Would you say that that's fair, Brian? (laughs) I would say that is more than fair because I had zero rebellious streak. I guess maybe that's not quite true. I liked pushing buttons, which may come as a shock to both of you. Um, (laughs) But I was a high academic achiever. There was no doubt that I was going to do like the go to college and traditional like, you know, middle class kid kind of path. And Steph, you were into the punk scene in New York. Yeah. And I had friends who were in that scene. And my group was my calculus class and we all ran cross country together. Yeah. My good friends growing up were like our friend down the street. And the older, like, Swedish punk rockers that I met and who also lived in New Jersey. And we would all go to the city together. And my mother, 
I remember we redid my room when I was like 13 years old and I wanted to paint all the walls black. Like I just wanted complete <laughs> black walls. And so my mother decided to compromise by having pink and purple flowered wallpaper and a big brass bed and a pink carpet and like Laura Ashley sheets everywhere. So we had a little bit of that dynamic. (laughs) Oh, tell me about these Swedish punks, please. Oh, they were um, really good friends. It was Karn and Gunvor, right? Karn and Gunvor and their brother, Karl Eric. Karl Eric. Oh, yeah. Incredible names. Oh my God. And they were older than me and introduced me to a lot of great music. And they took me to my first bar in the city when I was 16. Do you remember what bar? Uh, it was Mona's on Avenue B. Mm-hmm. And we just had a lot of fun with them. We used to actually make goofy videos and stuff at home with them. I remember one time at our house where we grew up, I forget why, but mom and dad were away. You must have been off at college. And our 90-year-old grandmother was there. And the, our friends came over and we made an entire movie while my grandmother was asleep. It was like a B-movie, people turning into lizards. And we were all like drinking downstairs and making lizard people movies. And it was that kind of... <laughs> <laughs> That's delightful. Yeah. Did you go to a lot of punk shows during that time or afterwards? Oh, yeah. That's what I spent most of my time. That was like my social life growing up was the local record store and shows in New Jersey at like VFW halls and then a lot of time in the city, like ABC No Rio and CBGBs and all those places seeing shows. This was like social justice punks, right? A lot of them. Yes. I was very into like political punk rock. Wow. So do you feel like there's a direct line for you from that to ACLU? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the bands that were in the scene that you were seeing then? Like, who were the big players? Well, so when I first started collecting records, and I loved all, like, East Bay, Gilman Street punk stuff when I was, like, young and in high school and at the going to the local record store. <laughs> do you remember when... um? What's his name? Called our upstairs phone line. Oh, when Lint from Rancid (laughs) called. (laughs) Yes. In fact, I was just thinking when we started to talk about this. Or do you want me to tell this story? I think you have to tell this. Okay. Talk about just what that band was and who he was and how you knew him. Oh, well, so I was just obsessed with Operation Ivy when I was. You're probably like 14, 15. Yeah, something like that. And it was before Rancid had really started. And I wrote the P.O. box or whatever that was on all of their albums and just asked, you know, if the band was doing anything else, because it was before the internet or before anything. And you would write bands letters and ask them if they were new bands. (laughs) And this is like the very start of like zine culture is like really starting right around this time too, right? Yeah. So like everything is analog print. Yeah. So I wrote them a letter and Tim Armstrong or Lynn, as he was known then, wrote back and told me about how he had this new band, Rancid, and, you know, they had this new 7-inch coming out. And then I can't remember if he, like, included his phone number or (laughs) he must have, or I must have called him or if he asked for my phone number and I wrote it back. But somehow he had our phone number, which I like to imagine, Brian, when he called, it was still your Garfield phone. For a while, I did have a Garfield fan. I was a big, yeah. big, big Garfield fan for many years. Uh, who isn't? And I had the phone that where, you know, the cradle is Garfield and you set the phone in Garfield's back. The phone that he called on I had was a Epcotty Jetsons gray and black looking thing. Oh, that's right. And it would go into my, you know, whatever it was, 1200 baud modem. 
the yeah. line from that into the modem, into the computer. So yeah, it was not Garfield, it was that. That's all I can remember because I literally don't remember how he had my phone number, but he must have written back and forth a couple times or something. So Stephanie, her room and I, we shared a line. Basically, my parents got us our own phone line partly so that I could use it for my modem because I was, you know, dialing up BBSs and CompuServe and early internet kind of bullshit. And also just so we could have our own line. It wouldn't tie up the house line. And so one day I'm sitting in my room and it's, I don't know, it's like evening or whatever. And the phone rings and I pick it up. And this guy with this very like affected voice on the other end. So I pick up, I'm like, hello. And this guy goes, Yo, this is Lint. Is Steph there? <laughs> and I was like, it's who? And he's like, is Lint? And I remember going, well, Lint, uh, excuse me just a moment and I'll check if Steph is available. And honestly, I don't think you were. I can't remember exactly what the deal was because I, I remember talking to him again and just having a very brief conversation with him where I was like, Lint, is it? Well, it appears that my 15 year old sister is not home right now. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, this guy must have been in his what, early 20s, mid 20s at this point? Yeah, I think so. Which I didn't know, you know, I'd love to say in retrospect, why is this skeevy older guy calling my teenage sister. No, I had no inkling of that whatsoever. I just thought it was funny that a guy I didn't know named Lint was going to talk <laughs> to my younger sister. Yeah. And little did I know, Rancid would go on to be like a big band. Like this guy, you know, was a rock star for a while, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, they're really big. Did you ever end up calling him back? I think I ended up talking to him on the phone. And then I remember I did see him in person. I met him in person at a show they played, I think at the Wetlands in New York City. And it turns out he had dated someone I knew who was also there. There was some kind of bad relationship. And as soon as I was associated with that person, he was like, did not want to interact with us. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> there was some drama. Which honestly, vastly for the best. Yeah. I mean, I was 15. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whew. Well, <laughs> So what would you consider in that time and afterwards, like the best show experience and the worst show experience for you? Oh, I don't think I can do best show, worst shows. Because I feel like, one, I have a terrible memory for most of the shows that I saw as a teenager and young adult. But the last show you see that you had a really good time at is always the best show. Mm -hmm. But there were some big bands that you saw that came through that scene. You know, we're in our mid-40s, so this was, you know, 30-ish years ago. Like, this is kind of a mythic scene at this point, right? Maybe not as mythic as the 70s were for punk yeah. in New York. But, you know, late 80s, early 90s, punk is a scene that people talk about with fondness, for sure, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was definitely fun and formative. Right. Do you remember that time we ended up at the same party together by accident? Oh, I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I was horrified. <laughs> I know. You should tell that story because you probably remember it better than I do. Well, so I was home from college. This is probably my freshman year. So this would have been, what, your sophomore year of high school? Yeah. And I had some good friends who were from Wayne, New Jersey, which is the next town over and a bigger town than ours. It's like one of the bigger towns where we grew up. 
And so me and a bunch of my college friends from Wayne, they were like, oh, somebody of ours is having a party. I think somehow I remember that the guy was a tuba player. Do you remember this? You know what? He was a friend of my friend Lauren's, whoever's party it was. So I didn't actually even know the people whose party that we went to. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I would just went to this party because it was like, oh, some of my college friends are going with their high school buds. And I show up at this place and I walk in and you are there. And I remember walking in and you turned around and like all the blood drained out of your face. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, what the, f- our social circles had never, ever intersected randomly before. Never. Like occasionally we would be at like the same thing, but knew we were going to be there or whatever. Right. But it had never been a thing where like we just randomly ended up in the same friend group. And that was not a good thing for you. (laughs) Yeah. Was this like hair down your back era, Brian? Well, I was growing it. This was right after my freshman year. It was like getting long, but I had three more years to grow that out before it was like all the way down my back. Hold on. My snot is falling out of my face onto my desk. So, (laughs) (laughs) Stephanie, what are the truly embarrassing or awful stories you can tell about me as a child? Do you remember anything? (laughs) Well... You know my favorite story. Is this the God's phone number story? Yeah, it is. (laughs) Well, then please tell it. So we were on, I think it was one of the road trips that we took. Our parents always, for a long time, had a van. And it was one of those like old, probably like 70s, 80s vans. There was like a bed in the back. You didn't have to be seat belted in. The back seat was a bench seat that would fold down into a bed. Yep. Wow. And there was like, even like a, a very early on, like, TV that was up there. Yeah, we had one van and then the upgraded van, which was like, I remember being blue and gray, right? Yeah. So right behind the driver's and passenger seat in the middle, up, there was a tiny little TV, which was maybe like a four-inch screen or something. Yeah, you couldn't see anything. Like a little, little TV. You couldn't see anything. I love that. Yeah. And we had a VHS player. So on these long road trips, we could watch VHS tapes on this teeny tiny little TV. Mm-hmm. Which is not relevant to the story, but just to set the scene, I guess. Yeah, so we were literally hurtling down, you know, the highways and byways of this country at whatever, 60, 70 miles an hour, not seat belted, laying down on this bed in the back. Yeah. <laughs> Watching VHS tapes. Wow. Yeah. I remember at some point you got very mad at a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> well, and I can't remember exactly what I was mad about, but... At one point, I said something about the fact that I was going to call God and that I had his phone number. (laughs) And your response was, you don't have God's phone number. And I said, yes, I do. And you said, well, then tell it to me. And I realized at that moment, I had like the perfect way where Brian couldn't disprove me. And I said, I'm sorry, God said I can't give it to you. <laughs> and this drove him insane. I was very upset. Because he had no way to prove that I did not have God's phone number because <laughs> God wouldn't let me give it to him. I had trapped him in like the most perfect way possible. And he was furious. And I think this went on forever with him just saying, Tell me what it is. And me saying, I'm sorry, God says you can't have it. <laughs> This is exactly how religion works. 
<laughs> Truly, yeah. How old were both of you during this story? If I had to guess, I'd say I was probably seven or eight and you were five or six, something like that. Yeah, maybe you were 10. I don't know. Somewhere <laughs> in that like five to 10 range. I do love a story of a younger sibling really sticking it to an older sibling. Like, I've got God's phone number. Uh, fuck you. Yeah, because Brian always knew so much more than I did. I was two and a half years older. And it was the one thing that I could hold over his head. Incredible. So would you like to tell us all what God's phone number is? I'm sorry, but God says that I can't tell you. Shut up. But no, just say it. But just say it. I'm sorry. I would if I could, but my hands are really tied on this. Damn it. Far be it for me to disagree. What I really wish is that we could have some visual to show the VHS tapes that we would make together as kids. Mm -hmm. And the ones that you would make. So Brian would make these like day in the life of a dog videos where he would take the video <laughs> camera. Like it's one of those old VHS ones, you know, where you like put the tape in yeah, and he would take it and like make it go around the house. Like it was a dog and it would be a day in the life of the dog. And half of it was just following our other dogs around the house. <laughs> and then the other half of it was videotaping my mother who would just be like, Brian, cut it out. Brian, Brian, <laughs> Brian, I'm trying to cook dinner. Brian, cut it out. <laughs> We also, we had a cousin who lived with us for a while who really did not want to be on camera. Oh, yeah. And, well, let's just say it was then my mission to get her on camera. And that was not a popular decision in some corners of the house. <laughs> I love, like, a youthful foray into experimental film. Yeah, I was very into making these weird little home movies. And I had no editing except for like stopping and starting the recording. Of course. As many people did in those days, like home movies. I had no idea. I remember at some point being confused, like, how do they do it when they're making a real movie? Like, <laughs> how do they do it out of sequence and get it to stop and start? I just had no idea how to edit a film. How do they do it indeed? Yeah, and for all the youngins listening to this, like, there was no digital editing software or anything like that, right? You're just doing it from a VHS tape, so you'd need a rig in order to do it, or we weren't shooting on film or anything. Like, it wasn't even the thing where you were splicing film together. That wasn't possible with VHS. Oh, yeah. Right? So it was really a black box where movies went in, and then they just lived there. I had no idea how to edit anything. You did make a couple, I remember there were some stop-motion movies with your Opus dolls and your Build-A-Cat dolls. Yes, that's right. I was very into Bloom County, and I had a lot of stuffed animals from that. There's also stuff with my shoes. I would make my shoes walk down the hallway in stop motion. Ah, see, this is another interesting precursor to your current proclivities. Yeah. And then there was the Garfield obsession, which my other favorite young Brian story that I wasn't there for, but I remember my mother retelling, is there was a, a pharmacy next to their parents' store, and Brian, I don't know how old you were, you were quite young, and apparently he walked in and he looked up and there was a four foot Garfield doll that was up on a shelf somewhere. <laughs> and they said he just looked up at it and a tear just rolled down his cheek as he was staring at it. <laughs> <laughs> that's so beautiful. <laughs> and then they got it to him for Christmas. Yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. So I had this gigantic fucking Garfield doll. I mean, this thing was enormous, like as big as you are thinking, you know, as big as a standing child. I had this thing in my room for, I mean, 10 years or something. It just never went away. 
why they got that thing for me. Well, it's because they loved us, but... Because you had such an emotional need for it, apparently. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Leighton, you have to understand how popular Garfield was in the 80s. Garfield was a big fucking deal. And I had all the books. I would quote them constantly. It's a big Garfield fan. I guess I just had a very emotional reaction to this Garfield. I remember getting in trouble, you know, whenever I did. And then if I had to go to my room, I would just stand there and kind of sit near that Garfield doll and roll my polyhedral dice while talking to Garfield. Oh, the heart-to-heart chats between a four-foot-tall Garfield and a baby Brian. Yep. You rolling a single tear at a Garfield feels very Werner Herzog crying at Baby Yoda. (laughs) Yeah. I have something that's completely opposite of saying embarrassing stories. I want each of you to say something nice about each other. I mean, where to start? I could say a million nice things about Steph. I think it is more impactful if we say it to the other person. So rather than talk about you in the third person, Steph, I will say it to you. I just think you're so impressive and awesome. You do all sorts of great stuff, especially for your job. You work for a very, very influential and important organization that does good work. And I'm very proud of what you do there. Aww. You have always been an amazing and supportive older brother, especially through all of the loss that we went through in our early 20s, mid-20s, whatever they were. Mm-hmm. And even with how accomplished and everything that you have done in your academic career, you have always made me feel just as successful and valued as the things that you've accomplished. Oh, well, that's very sweet. Thank you. <laughs> that's lovely. You should, because what I did as a scientist is, I would say, measurably less important than what you do. (laughs) I was going to say no more important, but I think it is actually like I was playing with a bunch of numbers for kind of bullshitty reasons and you're out there changing the world. So I think what you do actually matters to human lives. And what I did was make a bunch of nerds happy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that feels like a good segue into, I don't know much about the inner workings of the ACLU or working for nonprofits in general. So I'd be curious to hear what your experience has been like? Oh, yeah. So I have always worked in nonprofit. I was a gender studies major in college. I went to McAllister. So I went through several iterations of like feminist career ideals. There's a gender studies major. And for a brief time, thought I wanted to be a midwife. I remember that. Do you remember I bought Mm. you a book? (laughs) I didn't realize what it was. It was some like weird uh, pop fiction book about midwives. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do remember. For Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. Because I was like, oh, this is what you're interested in. I remember for like a couple of years, you were interested in being a midwife. Yeah, I was very against kind of the medicalization of childbirth. And then that made me very interested in midwifery. And then I can't remember what steered me away from that. But at some point, you know, I was in college in my 20s. So then something else happened. (laughs) And I left college and desperately wanted to work for Planned Parenthood and not sure what I wanted to do, but I got my foot in the door to local nonprofit in fundraising and then ended up through that avenue, kind of, you know, finding my way into the fundraising department at Planned Parenthood and worked there for several years doing like data and system support for fundraising technologies. And so then the ACLU recruited me, like I've always worked in nonprofit operations a lot of times in the like technical and kind of business and operational strategy part of the world and translating between operations people and technology. 
And so I didn't know that I was good at that until I started doing it. (laughs) Classic. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is a thing. Like, this is a thing people do. This is a skill set. Yeah, it's a skill set. And so I've been at the ACLU for 17 years. I have worked my way through fundraising and operations, was the IT director for a number of years up until the 2016 election, where we went from, I think it was like 300,000 members to 1.6 million members, basically in a couple months after the election, and then just grew as an organization And then took on a new role of what I'm doing now where I'm deputy chief operating officer and I oversee all of our like internal business operations programs, including our facilities. And for the past year, all of the COVID response internally and remote work and figuring out how to transition people for that and get people back to work safely and all kinds of other kind of internal business programs that I essentially saw a gap for in the organization as we grew and said, we should have this. And then I got the opportunity to kind of do that and create it. What I love, because I'm not a lawyer and I'm not an activist and I'm kind of not a public person, I think in the same way that you are, Brian, like I like my operations behind the scenes stuff. Like I like to make things work and structures and functions and like make things effective so that amazing people like our lawyers and our organizers and our fundraisers can all like do their jobs and get the program done. Yeah, that's amazing. The last few years have been so interesting because of that explosive growth. I see this happening a lot. You definitely know more about this than I do. In nonprofits where some cause or event or whatever directs a lot of attention to them and then they see this explosive growth. And that's something that, you know, I think you're there at an interesting time. Well, and that's always been my, what I'm interested about in nonprofits, especially small nonprofits, like infrastructure and systems are usually not the investment and the priority. And I mean, I love what I do. It it basically is my dream job. But (laughs) if I had a dream job away from my current nonprofit dream job, like I would love some organization that helps small nonprofits essentially invest in infrastructure because there's so much money for programs and often the people who are the closest to the communities don't necessarily have the right background in like strategy and infrastructure that if you just had gave them the resources to do that, it can make such a difference for small organizations. I feel like this is the story of every small business for profit or nonprofit where you start it and you're like, oh, this is awesome. And then you start doing it and you realize at some point that the way you do it sucks. And <laughs> You need someone who understands how things work to come in and help you run it better. Like if you're a two-person organization, you can kind of do whatever. But once you start having employees and you're like 10 or more people, that matters. And it really starts affecting things. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like there is a lot more invisible work behind nonprofits, like what you do. I feel like a lot of people who want to be involved don't see that that door is there for them. Yeah, especially the infrastructure stuff is kind of the less seen. Like everyone thinks about nonprofit work, I think more from the programmatic perspective. And there's so much to do in more kind of operational and behind the scenes work within the organizations. The other thing that I get to do that I actually really love is kind of infuse all of our organizational missions into our operations. So just the way that we work internally 
We think a lot about equity, diversity, inclusion, and how we actually infuse those into operational programs and make sure that the way that we're investing our internal money, meaning like what we spend all of our services on, how we think about equity and inclusion there, creating operational programs around accessibility and ensuring it's built into the way we work as an organization. And so the thing I do love about nonprofit, not that I've ever worked in a for-profit organization, is that every person who works there is generally pretty mission-infused. And so, you know, the people who run the office mailroom care just as much about the mission of the organization as like the lawyer in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And figuring out the opportunities to infuse kind of the values we have as an organization into the way that we do our work internally is just really rewarding. Yeah. So what element of the job are you currently like most excited about? Oh, so right now we're working on figuring out all of our return to office under COVID. (laughs) And it's actually really interesting to try to keep up with like the ever evolving priorities. But what I actually really love about it is that the organization has taken a very like staff valued approach into the way that we're thinking about it. And it almost feels like, organizational scaffolding, helping people kind of like get through the pandemic in the way where it's like, we value what you're going through. We're committing to do this in a way that's like both valuing you, valuing public health, not rushing to do anything out of necessity and like figuring out where we can provide resources to staff to help with things that they need. And so I just love solving a problem. So like figuring out the moving pieces of all, like how you reopen offices and put in completely new remote work policies and all this like nerdy operational stuff that I get really excited about, but most people don't, (laughs) (laughs) is really fun for me. But I also feel like the staff in our organization deserve to feel supported. And I'm really proud of the fact that we treat people as human beings and provide transparency and support they need because work is such a big part of people's lives. And especially our staff is so committed that it's very rewarding to be supportive of people and have people feel like you care about them. Yeah. That's what everyone wants to feel at their job. Yeah. Right. Is that their job actually cares. We hear enough stories of hellish mega corporations abusing workers and all that sort of stuff. It's nice to have a company that aligns with the values of the company. Yeah. You're actually taking care of people, which is what you're there for anyway. The solving problems thing, you and I have our differences and our similarities, but that is one of our similarities where I think we both like solving problems and figuring stuff out. And I would imagine also double checking other people's work (laughs) looms large, not talking about you, Layden, or indeed in anyone in particular. But I think you and I both find it necessary and important for what we do to be the, hey, I think we need to think about this person, you know? Oh, totally. I love logistics so much. It's like, tell me where we're going and I'll map out the subway route. My friend Abby always made fun of me because when we were in our 20s, we worked together at the ACLU before there was like GPS and Google Maps. I used to print out MapQuest maps and highlight the most efficient route from the different bars we were going to go to <laughs> after work. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so sweet. I love that. <laughs> That's very interesting because my brain is so completely the opposite of that. Like mm-hmm. I love to create a problem and then solve the problem because that's writing and the creative process. But doing the roadmap shit, 
like I really have to rely on other people for that because it's not really in my skill set. Leighton, you have a pretty traditional artist type of brain. Yes. Not in the sense that what your work is traditional, but you think like an artist. Yes, that means I'm bad at emails. <laughs> you know what? I don't think you're bad at emails. I think you're pretty good at emails. Thank you. I'd say you're bad at math. Yeah. Jeez, Brian, you, you got to bring up a raw wound here. <laughs> Fuck math. I mean, math's good. I don't know. You strike me, Leighton, as quite organized. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of artists and scientist types over the years. And you are very, very far from the throw a bunch of pens into the sky and catch one type of personality. Gee whiz. You have your shit together. <laughs> Gee whiz, I think I just have anxiety uh, and low self-worth. So thank you. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like for me personally, my anxiety about things going wrong is why I double check a lot of things and have them go right. Yeah. Because to some extent, my constant struggle personally is wanting to be hands off and then being like, you know what? I'm just going to let someone else handle this one. And then it immediately gets fucked up. And I'm like, oh, why? Why did I let someone else check the details on this? Happens to me all the time. I think this is where our career paths taught us different skills because I was like that until I started managing. Right. Kind of management and delegation. I learned so much more how to get over that part of myself. You mean just letting people do what they're going to do? Or owning the anxiety about double-checking things? Well, owning the anxiety, but also resolving myself to the fact that sometimes people have to make those mistakes to learn from them. So they need to do that. And also just not doing it my way isn't a mistake and letting people, you know, accepting that when you delegate something, it may mean that someone's going to do it a different way, which is probably very different in math than it is in other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you know, in physics or math, there's like a right answer. So I should say when I was a scientist, you're always coming up with problems and then all fanning out to solve them. And occasionally people have dedicated tasks, but more often than not, at least in the stuff I worked on, everyone's just kind of working on everything simultaneously. And then everyone double checks their own calculations a thousand times and everyone double checks everyone else's a thousand times. I think honestly, the big difference between what you're doing and what I do is I am working in extremely small organizations where there's not a larger structure at play here where there's a bunch of people just doing small parts of a project. It's like a very small handful of people doing stuff and the errors loom larger. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because the tasks are larger, generally speaking. Yeah. You know, like in the case of NSP, I'm not a manager, right? I'm a co-owner and that's a different role. Yeah. Do we want to do segments? Yes. I definitely want to do segments. I'm very excited about our first segment. Oh, boy. I got to go grab a package from downstairs so it doesn't get stolen. I'll wait until you come back. No, you don't got to. You don't have to do that. No, I will. I'd prefer it. Oh, God. I've returned. I now have my book, my lovely little summer read about dying from radiation poisoning. Oh, sweet. Hmm. All right. Do your fucking segment. Okay. You can be honest here. I won't be upset no matter what your answer is. Have you listened to this show before? Um, so, That's yes. No. no, 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 no. <laughs> well, because I don't remember if you told me this, but I tried to listen to the show when it first came out 
And I listened to the first episode and I had this weird reaction where I felt like you were talking to me, like you didn't even know me. And then I couldn't listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. That's weird. It was weird. But then I listened when you asked me last week, I listened to an episode or two, especially after you told me about the segments so I could like understand what they were. Uh So you, you listened to the segments? Yeah. Well, you probably heard my favorite part of the show. So our first segment is called What's Poppin'. It is the pop culture recommendation part of the show when you get to recommend any kind of pop culture, book, movie, TV show, game, whatever that you're into or feel like you should be into. But the amazing thing about this segment is the theme song, which I wrote. Now, you have listened to a lot of my music over the years. Have you heard the theme song to What's Poppin'? I don't remember it. Oh, okay. Well, that's the answer I was looking for. (laughs) Because then you get to experience it with fresh ears for the first time. So you actually, more than any other guest in this show, you have heard music I've been writing for 30 years or Mm -hmm. something like that, right? You heard music I wrote, probably little stuff I would do at the piano when I was practicing in our house, and then you came to a few college performances. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see Agave, my San Diego band play? I can't remember. I did when I came out and visited you that one time. Oh, that's right. You know what? We'll get to that story in a minute. But I do want to tell the story about how we went to that kid's parents' house. Oh, that's right. We'll get to that in just a second. So you heard my jam band in San Diego play. You've been to several Ninja Sex Party shows, you've heard the albums, you have heard more of my musical output, I think, than any other living person. Yeah. Probably. Which makes sense because we lived in the same house for 18 years or whatever. Right. <laughs> Layton, are you still there? I'm just checking in. Yeah, I'm doing great. Hi. And so what you will be able to appreciate in a way that nobody else has is what influences go into the what's popping theme song. Now, the theme song, in a way, it is an amalgamation of all of these styles that I've been working on my entire life, from my classical training to my jazz training to my comedy training to my synth stuff. It's got a little bit of everything. And I think you are uniquely positioned to appreciate it in a way that no other guest ever has before. So I'm going to play it for you. You can be as critical as you like. You can tell me how much you love it. You can tell me how much you don't love it, but you're not going to not love it. I'm sure you're going to love it. That being said, if you have some kind of weird critical reaction about it, that's fine, even though that's not going to be the case. I mean, Brian, you know, if you made it, I love it. Well, thank you. Thank you. But hold your opinion. Even though you're uniquely positioned to appreciate it, I do want you to listen to it as if you didn't know me or know that it was from me. Not just as your loving sister. That's correct. As an unbiased listener. So here we go. What's poppin' theme song? is playing now. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? And there it is. Mm-hmm. What did you think? I, I get the joke. What joke? I get it. I don't understand what the joke is. <laughs> Can you explain to me what the joke is? The joke is how great it is. Well, what did you think of it? Honestly, Brian? I thought it was the best piece of music you've ever written, what you just played me. Hell yeah. (laughs) Bam. That's all I'm looking for. (laughs) Thank you. This goes in the victory column, Leighton. Mark it. Yeah, I'm marking it. It's being marked right now. 
just adding another transgression to the crimes against comedy list. So the story that I was alluding to during the very short lead up to that theme song was Stephanie came out to San Diego to visit me when I was uh, living out there. And my bar band jam band was playing a show. And I think that was one of the shows we played at kind of a bigger club that we didn't normally play at. And another band on the bill that night was like a local reggae band. (laughs) And everybody was very excited because the lead singer of the reggae band had just gotten out of prison. And this was his like, welcome back show. So we played this show with them. And after the show, and I was playing sax in, in my band, among other things at the time, and the dude from the reggae band, the lead singer, the out-of-prison guy, was like, dude, I love your sax playing. We're playing a party tonight in, he named some place that was like an hour away. You should come and just like play with us. And because Steph was in town, I was like, why not? Let's go have a night. We decided to go to this gig an hour away and he gave us the address. And again, you know, pre Google maps or whatever, we just had to like figure it out. So we drive out to this gig. I thought it was at like a club and it was some kid's parents' house. Do you remember this? They police taped off various rooms in the house Mm -hmm. so that people couldn't get into them. And it took forever to get out there. I think a couple of friends came with us if I remember correctly. Yeah. And we show up at this place and it's a bunch of high schoolers. It is like a high school party at some kid's (laughs) parents' house. And do you remember there was like a vodka luge or something in the backyard? I feel like I can't remember what was that party and what was a movie about a high school party. Like it all just gets mashed up in my head together. Yeah. But it was kids. Like it was definitely kids. And at the time, I mean, I was probably 27 something like that. So you would have been like 25 ish. (laughs) And I was like, I am the oldest person here. I'm definitely the oldest person here. It took us an hour to get there. We hung out for maybe 20 minutes (laughs) and then the cops came. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, let's get out of this high school party with all the alcohol. Where you're the oldest person. (laughs) Where I'm the oldest person before we start to have a problem. So I never played the show with the band like it just never even happened i'm not sure they even knew i was there (laughs) but yeah fabulous the point is now that i'm 46 i'm finally ready to go to another high school party and play the saxophone so if anyone wants to invite me (laughs) let me know i am a musician for hire uh layton what's popping what's popping for me aside from the various murder books i'm reading there is a panel on youtube called hbo's barry a conversation with bill hader and john mulaney who are the two funniest people in the world it's like uh, an hour and a half and it's just solid gold it's just two extremely funny people who are very close cracking each other up to the point where they can't breathe and then at the end of it they open the floor for a q and a and god bless q and a's but it really it's uh, uncomfortable to sit through, but they take it like champs because, again, God bless Q&As. But if you're going to do a question at a Q&A where everyone came to see people talk, actually ask a question, not a statement. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was super funny and I needed the comedy content. So I recommend that. My daughter, those are her two favorite comedians. So I have to watch that with her. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's an absolute delight. Your daughter has great taste. <laughs> she really does. You get good, like, Barry lore, good SNL lore. Like, it's great. 
Super great. Cool. Uh, Brian. Yes. What is popping for you? What's popping for me is I had the unique pleasure of watching a film that a friend is in. And in fact, a past guest on the show. I'm referring to The Suicide Squad, where a Mr. Flula Borg is in it. Whoa! As Javelin. And it's a fun movie. I really enjoyed it. Is he a bad guy? They're all bad guys, in a sense. Right. So, yes, he plays a minor DC villain named Javelin. Look at him. I'm looking at pictures. Look at him. Have you not seen this before? No. He looks awesome. What the fuck? He got, like, crazy in shape for it, and still is. The movie is really, really fun. It's a James Gunn, written and directed by movie. And it is so cool. Like, I saw on Twitter... His character has his own hashtag and emoji. Yo. And I was just like, oh my God, dude, you have your own like little emoji on Twitter. Like, that's so cool. It's the kind of thing where I'm just thrilled for him. And the movie is also just objectively a fun, wild ride. So I really liked it. He's great in it. It's a fun film. You know, the the cast is pretty, pretty huge. Also features a prominent role for one of my favorites, Peter Capaldi. I just love and oh. everything. You know, if you don't know Peter Capaldi, he was the 12th Doctor mm-hmm. and also Malcolm Tucker from Thick of It. Just an incredible and very, very acerbic Scottish guy. So I love Peter Capaldi. I was thrilled he was in it. And also, who else is in this? Nathan Fillion, Idris Elba, John Cena, Margot Robbie. Lots of cool people. And Pete Davidson. <laughs> and Wow, brutal. Yep. Well. You're not a fan? Rachel and I talk about this a lot. What is it about Pete Davidson where some of the hottest, most successful women in the world are like that guy? He's been with Ariana Grande, Kate Beckinsale, Larry David's daughter, whose first name I forget. But isn't that the case for like every big star? To some extent, but is he a big star? It's not like I don't find him funny, although I guess it actually is exactly like that. Um, (laughs) But- most of what he does, I'm like, oh, okay, sure. That's pretty good. Chad's a funny character. Plenty of women make bad choices for men <laughs> who are not celebrities. So <laughs> I don't think you're seeing like a specific Pete Davidson thing. I think you're just seeing a spotlight <laughs> on some poor choices. Not that I'm projecting my own experience onto anything, but <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying it's a spotlight on a maybe an overall phenomenon. There is a certain type of woman who sees a scumbag and is like, yes. And I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm not talking about myself. Uh, It just is sometimes it's like that. Yeah, I get it. But I don't get it because whatever. Let's just say there's a Pete Davidson moment in the Suicide Squad that made Rachel very, very, very happy. Interesting. And if you watch the movie... You'll know what I'm talking about. Does he die? I don't want to give anything away, but yeah, he gets his face blown off. Is that true? Yes. People are going to be so mad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's what's popping. Steph, what's popping? So I have been reading the Tom Sharpling book that you gave to me. I almost talked about this. I don't have it in front of me and can't remember the exact title. It never ends. Thank you. But I'm really enjoying it. And I think part of it is that his stories about growing up in New Jersey and his local record store and, you know, everything just give me a very like nostalgic feel. For sure. 
and some of the things that he's been through, but it's a really good, fun read and has a lot of heart. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I loved it. Exactly. The Jersey stuff is great. Also, you probably know a lot more about like the hardcore and punk stuff that he talks about than I did. I get it, but a lot of the specifics were lost on me. But yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a really, really wonderful book that I would recommend to, I mean, you don't have to be from Jersey. I would recommend it to anybody for sure. Actually, I have right in front of me when I ordered it, I pre-ordered it and sent later as a signed book plate. And then I bought another copy. The one I gave to you was the pre-order. I got another copy from Book Soup here in LA, which is signed by him. So I have, I'm holding it right now, a little signed book plate, which I'm going to mail to you so you can put it in the front of the book. Great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Highly recommend it. Yeah. And especially, he talks a lot, very honestly, about his struggles with mental illness and having a career in the arts and comedy. And I think a lot of the stuff he discusses will resonate with listeners to this show because it's stuff we do talk about a lot on here. And he talks about it in a very compassionate and compelling way. Wonderful. All right. We got a nice little spread of pieces of media. We got a panel, we got a movie, and we got a book. Yeah. And a very successful intro to the What's Poppin' theme song, I would say. (laughs) That's debatable. Not really. What do we call it when we have a What's Poppin' where it's three different types of media? Pop Facta. You got it in one. All right. Time for our final segment, which is called Peaches and Lemons, which is three parts gratitude exercise and one part petty grousing. And folks, I like to keep it real with you. I like to respect your time. Uh, The theme song goes right here. And we're back from the theme song. Also, to be real with people, I also like to respect their time, which is why I give them the comedy content that they crave. Right. Comedy crimes. So we will each start with a lemon, which is a minor bummer or annoyance. Who has a lemon? I can go here. So my lemon, Stephanie and I both do Peloton. Mm -hmm. And Steph encouraged me to sign up for this thing called the Power Zone Pack which is a a little group of people that do a specific type of workout and what it is doesn't matter. But my lemon is I got a somewhat accusatory email (gasps) from the organizer. They do these little challenges where they're like, assign these rides to you. And like, I guess in your group, is this how it works? If you complete the rides, like your group gets points or something. Yeah. And so every week there are four rides that are mandatory, quote unquote, and a fifth that's called an accelerator ride that is optional. I got on an email blast where it's like, hey, we're almost at platinum, but not everybody has been doing their accelerator ride. So maybe if you could fucking step it up or let me know if you don't plan to do it. I believe the exact words used were it would relieve a lot of stress. (laughs) Hmm. Now, What happens when you get these points? Here's what happens. Literally nothing. Absolutely nothing. You are competing for nothing. The results of this don't matter. And I was like, Michelle, calm down. I'm doing these rides. I have done all of them, actually. I will miss one of them for the first time this week. And I was like, I don't need this bullshit from you, Michelle. Also, the other thing they tell you in PowerZone constantly is the only person you're competing against is yourself. Mm. And... Then I get this email, which was like, we're losing and it's your fault. <laughs> Actually, it's been really great. I've loved the rides and having like the thing picked out ahead of time. 
I do think this one person needs to chill out a little bit. And that's to say nothing, and I have texted Steph about this, about the Facebook group we're in, where people are, shall we say, a bit too enthusiastic about this program. So that's my lemon. Calm down, Michelle. Based on every single thing you've said about the Peloton in this show, sounds fucking miserable. I have to say, I've never been a cult member in my entire life up until this point, and I am all in. It's pretty great. I really like it overall. I don't love that their treadmills are extremely dangerous, and there appear to be some problems with that. But the as far as the bike stuff goes, I'm in. I like it a lot. The thing I'm talking about now is kind of an ancillary thing that I signed up for because Steph told me about it. And there's a lot of great stuff there. Once you start introducing leaderboards, it brings out the worst in people. Mm. That's the real issue. It's not the workout. It's the existence of a random leaderboard that now people can worry about. Yeah. And just make sure you never go look at all of the um, Peloton Moms Facebook groups because those are a nightmare. Ugh. Yeah, that sounds like a portal directly into hell. It is. My other rule about Peloton is with one exception, and that exception is you, Stephanie. I will not high-five people. Like, you can do this thing where you push a little hand emoji and it high-fives people, like for fucking team-building bullshit. Uh-uh. People high-five random people all the time, and I will never return them, except the one time you high-five me, and I high-five back. I know. I wanted to high-five you a lot just to annoy you, but then I didn't want to really scare you off that much and make you never high-five me again. You can do it all you want. It's like riding for the wine 68, you know, that I'm not going to high five back. There's a lot of Peloton usernames. You see everyone's username and some basic demographic information. And there's a lot of reference to how much alcohol people are going to drink because of the calories they're burning. It's troubling. What I've learned from Peloton usernames is that people define themselves by the number and gender of the children that they have. Yes, absolutely. What they drink. Yep. And tacos. Yeah, there's a lot of taco talk. That's absolutely true. Taco Rider 84. <laughs> Maybe Taco Talk should be your Peloton name. I like that. I will tell nobody my Peloton name. Beautiful. Steph, do you have a lemon? So my lemon is I am feeling overwhelmed and annoyed by how quickly the weeds grow in Jersey City and the fact that I can't keep up to them. And every time I walk up to my house, it feels like a reminder of the fact that I am <laughs> unable to keep up with the constant wildlife growing around my house that will soon someday take over and eat at it. <laughs> but I just can't make myself do it. Well, it's one of those things where once you take care of it, it just means you're going to have to do it again and again and again. Yeah. And it's like it's taunting me outside my window. Man, having yards. Why did we decide to have those? Yeah, the weeds are particularly bad where you are. It's like the city thing and it's wet and it's hot and... I live in a city. It's only weeds. There are no lawns. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Like I decided to have a lawn in a place where grass doesn't grow. Well, I mean, not in your LA way. Instead, it's just weeds and garbage. <laughs> yeah. Layden. My lemon is parking related, which is so exciting. I know. I have to pretty much exclusively do street parking and something that really pisses me off, especially on the weekends. Listen, I get it. Finding a parking spot here is very difficult. It gets Mad Maxi on the weekends. But when you're getting ready to pull out and you're pulling up your music or your Google Maps or whatever, and somebody pulls up directly next to you and is like, mouths, are you leaving? That's fine. You can take my spot. Why are you pulling directly up to block me getting out of the fucking spot to ask me if I'm leaving? 
Just give me a fucking second. And then they back up to let you out, but not enough. And then everybody's watching you fucking parallel your way out. And then there are people piling up. Just wait. Go around the block. Jesus Christ. That happened to me. And I literally could not like muster giving them a face that was positive. I just turned to them, gave them one finger, like frowning and nodded. (laughs) Like, I just don't. That's great. Yeah, that's my lemon. Time for peaches. Each of us do three nice things. Woo. Do you want to start, Layden? Sure. My first peach is that I haven't been on Twitter or social media for two weeks, which fucking rules. Oh, I bet. I have no idea what's going on in the world. I mean, I do now because I think it's way more fun instead of just getting the constant trickle of doom, my friends will be like, hey, did you hear about this thing? And I'll be like, no. And then that means my friend gets to tell me about it. And then my friend says the worst shit you've ever heard. So maybe it's not that great, but I've sure felt saner and I'm almost at my goal of 50 books for 2021, five away. It's amazing. Losing my mind. My second peach is that over the weekend, I hung out with Aaron and Susie twice, and we just marathoned movies, including Aaron showing me Rise of Skywalker, which I had not seen because I've only seen like the middle of that trilogy. I would rather not put Star Wars opinions online because everything that could possibly have been said has already been said, but uh, whoo, fucking sucks. Oh, yeah. It's unbelievably bad. Unbelievably yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... It's not good. Just so many moments where I was cackling. Like, it's just inexplicable. Inexplicable. Why are they doing it? Why does anything matter? Yeah. Why are Ray and Kylo kissing? I don't know. Fuck it. Who cares? I liked little Babu Frick. I love to see a character where it's like, this was designed in a lab to sell toys. Yep. But he's simply a little guy. And I love to see just a little guy. Anyway, my third peach is... Since I've gotten a freezer back, been eating a lot of ice cream, and I gotta say, as much distaste that I have for the man, Jimmy Fallon has the best flavor of Ben & Jerry's ice cream. Mm. It's the Tonight Dough. It's really fucking good, and I keep buying it. What's in it? It's like chocolate chip cookie dough, peanut butter cookie dough, a caramel swirl, and then like chocolate bits. It's so ridiculous and good. With pints of ice cream, I always get pissy because I never feel like there's a good enough density of like chunks in it. And that's the only thing where it feels like an appropriate ratio of ice cream to chunk. Is it called the Jimmy Fallon flavor? Because whenever you get one of the bits, it breaks. (laughs) (laughs) Woo, pack it in, folks. That's the one. Hell yeah. It is funny because he's on the label and it's really, really badly photoshopped. So it just looks like a meme. Mm Mm-hmm. It's great. I just put my thumb over where he is and I will pretend that it is not his ice cream. (laughs) I will say that the Stephen Colbert one is also great, but not as good. That's a good Mm. flavor, yeah. It is. Americone Dream. Anyway, those are my three peaches. Who would like to say peaches? Do you want me to go, Brian? And then you can close it out? That's what I do. That's why they call me the closer. Oh. Yeah, me and Kira Sedgwick. Wow. <laughs> so my first one is I'm excited because I got tickets this week. The show isn't until October, but Josie Cotton is coming to Jersey City and they're going to show Valley Girl with it. So Josie Cotton, do you know who she was or is? No, I don't. 
She's kind of like 80s pop new wave, and she was well-known for being in the Valley Girl soundtrack, the Nicolas Cage movie, which is a movie I was obsessed with in college. Yes, I remember that, yeah. And so I have never seen her perform live, but apparently she's touring, and she's playing a venue in Jersey City where they're going to screen Valley Girl, and then she's going to play. So I'm very excited about that. That's awesome. And then my second piece is I bought myself a new phone Saturday, which I have never in my life indulged in buying like the latest technology because I don't really need it. But they had a deal and my old phone was very old and dead. And I bought like the fanciest, newest iPhone out there. Nice. Is that a 12? Yeah, the iPhone 12. So now I can be the uh, Instagram influencer I've always wanted to be. No, that's right. The, The camera is legitimately incredible on that. It's so good. Yeah, I've taken so many pictures of my cats with it already. (laughs) (laughs) It's what phones are for. It's the only thing they're supposed to do. It really, if you look at my camera roll from the year of the pandemic, it is 90% cats. (laughs) (laughs) And then my last one, oh, which is also apparently about cats. So there's a feral cat in my backyard that I've adopted and his name is Patches and he let me pet him and he let me put like, flea and tick medicine on him now. So now he looks like (gasps) cleaner and happier and he's getting very friendly and I'm not going to adopt him, but I'm very happy that he's let me like pet him and put medicine on him so he can be so itchy. Speaking of rewarding experiences, it's just nice getting him to trust you. It's a very sweet thing. Yeah. Ryan. Yes. Close us out. That's what I do, as I mentioned before. All right. Peach number one is I went on my first airline trip for work this past week. I went to Texas and I flew and it was fine. Flying was fine and the trip was great. Uh, It was a very fun work thing that I can't talk about, but I saw a lot of great people and had a very, very fun and rejuvenating experience. I was a little nervous about it. I actually talked about that on my lemon for the previous episode, but it worked out great. Number two, another work trip coming up is I'm taking a little writing retreat with someone that some of the people listening to this podcast might know, a Mr. Dan Avedan and our producer, Jim Roach. And we're going to start writing the next NSP original album. And we leave in two days for that. We're going just a little bit south here in California. Got a place near-ish, not on, but near-ish beach. And we're going to bring some gear and just try to write some comedy songs. And uh, my final peach is when I got back from this first work trip, waiting for me on the outside of our door was a very, very cute welcome home sign that said, welcome home, daddy. And there was a little picture of Rachel and Audrey waving and what looked like a giant gray blob with a monster inside of it, which was me. (laughs) (laughs) And everything was carefully labeled by Rachel so that I could tell what was what. Of course. And it was very, very cute. And someone was extremely happy to see me when I got home. And it wasn't Rachel. Although Rachel was happy to see me because it meant she wasn't solely responsible for childcare. But uh, Audrey was very, very happy to see me. And also, while I was gone, she lost another tooth. So, <gasps> oh, yeah, she called us. <laughs> yeah, she told me. <laughs> uh, she called you and Rachel's mom. Mm-hmm. And I maybe walked down the street to tell uh, <laughs> the couple that lives a couple houses down. What did she tell you when she talked to you? It was mostly like first just a, a giant screen close up of her mouth with her lip pulled down. That took me a minute to figure out what was happening. 
<laughs> yes. She hasn't lost a tooth in like, I don't know, it's been like a year and a half or something. She was eagerly waiting that next tooth to come out. And there it was. Which tooth was it? She'd lost the middle bottom two. Mm. And it was one on the side of those middle two. Nice. Yep. And she was very, very excited. And she tells everybody this. Her adult molars came in. You know, they're extra molars you grow when your mm -hmm. adult teeth come in that are not replacing baby teeth. They just show up. So yeah. we went to the dentist and she had all her molars too. So she was counting the number of adult teeth she had. She had to tell everybody that she has six and another one's coming in. It's very exciting. Very cute. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice that she's past that because I do remember those molars growing and not being pleasant. We didn't even know it was happening. Hmm. Like we went to the dentist for a routine checkup. The dentist like, she's got her back adult molars, all of them. We're like, oh, maybe that's why her attitude was like that for the last two years. <laughs> Time to chomp. Okay, so we are done with this episode. I do have something mm -hmm. that I want to say. There's a very special person that I want to dedicate this episode to. This episode, and indeed all episodes, go out to the one, the only, Hank Longo. Hank, you're my boy. Keep being awesome. Sick. That was awesome. He's going to be thrilled. Steph, thank you for being here. I love you. You're the best. Well, I love you too. This was so much fun. I hope that I was interesting enough for you, all of your listeners. <laughs> you were fantastic. Yeah, this was lovely. I thought you were great. The reason that we thought about doing this is we did a little thing on camera together. Actually, maybe I talked about this in the previous episode about a week ago. And Steph was like, anything you want me to do, I'll do it. Yeah. And I was like, ah, the podcast. So <laughs> I thought this was super, super fun. But Leighton, you can weigh in on whether this was fun or not. Yeah, this was a delight. <laughs> See, I told you. <laughs> Got him. Steph, I would normally ask where people can find you online, but I get the feeling that that's not your bag. So in lieu of that, are there any like ACLU things you want to direct people to? Yeah, I mean, they should just check out the ACLU website and look at all of our, I would say, important work that we're doing right now around voting rights. We just launched a big coalition with the NAACP and several teachers unions about trying to fight back some of the restrictive voting laws and the amazing work that we've been doing on fighting back a lot of like restrictive trans bans, specifically around like banning trans girls in sports and things like that. Oh, okay. So they should uh, check out the ACLU website and look up all that stuff. I also want to encourage people, if you're in California, please vote in this recall election. It's so stupid. Like Newsom is not my favorite person, but I don't think there are better options right now. Even if you do, just vote in the thing. I think a lot of Democrats are not voting, or at least that's the concern. So please vote in this thing. It's not that hard. You'll get a mail-in ballot. I just did mine today. Just vote in the recall election. Great. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Late Night with Brian Wecht. As always, hope you're all vibing, thriving, and surviving. And that is the end of the episode. Bye. Goodbye. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>